Give Me Liberty is brought to you by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. America faces a crisis. Too many Americans don't know why they should love their own country. Ashbrook's mission is to change that. Since President Reagan inaugurated the Ashbrook Center in 1983, its mission has been to strengthen constitutional self-government, educating students, teachers, and citizens in America's history and founding principles. Ashbrook just released an essential resource for rediscovering the principles and history of our country called The American Idea. The volume presents the American story through a few key primary documents and invites the reader into a rich conversation across time about the central idea that defines America. The American Idea is available as a free digital download and for purchase. Visit ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today. That's ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today. My name is Richard Brookheiser, and welcome to Give Me Liberty, the making of American exceptionalism, the podcast about liberty, America's exceptional idea. Before we were even a country, Americans were thinking about liberty, working for it, fighting for it. We've been doing it for 400 years. This is episode number one, Self-Rule, The Real Jamestown Project. And with me today is Luke Thompson, political consultant, history buff. If there's something in electoral history he doesn't know, it probably isn't worth knowing. Luke, let's begin. Well, thanks for uh, sitting down and having this conversation with me, Rick. Um, And thank you for this book. I, I really recommend it to everyone listening. I'm sure if they're listening, they don't need me to do that. But, um, but it's, a, it's a cracking good read, and I'm excited to talk about um, all of the parts of it, but starting here with, uh, with the minutes of the Jamestown uh, General Assembly. One of the themes that emerges throughout the book uh, and something that you trace in different settings through different ways is the way in which the American character of liberty is intermingled with other institutions, other traits, other habits that come sometimes from other places uh, or are driven by other motives and yet either bolster liberty or even become uh, a seedbed for it. And I think the, the Jamestown minutes are a good example of that. Jamestown was not what we would call a free society by and large, but we see some really important ideas emerging, patterns of behavior that are driven around necessity, uh, commerce, and uh, community building under difficult conditions. And, and Very difficult. Yeah. And as, as you show, these things all begin to kind of germinate this, I, this, this character in Virginia and then up and down the seaboard eventually that is liberty-oriented. I wanted to ask you specifically about the role that common law and especially property as it lives in the common law uh, played in Virginia because on the one hand, of course, there's no king, right? One of the prevailing characteristics of this is that the king is distant and not all that particularly concerned. On the other hand, royal authority continues to underwrite the entire project in Virginia and so they, they rely on a body of English law that at this point we've had the sort of the cook-bacon debates. We, we have some sense of the common law. But they innovate on it without abandoning a commitment to 
legality as an ordering principle of the way in which things are done. Is that a uniquely English heritage or is that something driven you think by the extraordinarily hostile conditions they found themselves in? Well, uh, to the first point, uh, yes, the king is remote but he's still the king. It is called Jamestown after all, right. after, after James I. Uh, Jamestown had a very rocky start. Uh, it was first founded in 1607 and there were all sorts of disasters. Uh, the original colonists arrived in what we now realize from examining tree rings and old logs in the middle of a drought. Uh, it was virtually impossible for them to grow their own food, very difficult to trade for food with the local Indians who were themselves suffering from the drought. Sometimes there was warfare between uh, the two uh, communities. There were endless disagreements among the original settlers themselves. We've all heard of Captain John Smith. He, he's the famous one. But there were a number of other leaders and they all squabbled and they all quarreled. Uh, you, you mentioned property and that was an important early innovation. There, there was one period after a disastrous winter which was called the starving time in which the colonists were reduced to eating dogs, eating vermin, chewing on leather, reputedly even eating corpses. I mean it was, it was just terrible. And after that, the colony was put under martial law. You know, people worked in gangs under overseers and if you didn't do it, you were broken on the wheel, which means you were beaten to death. This was a very severe regime. And the, the sponsors of this company back in England, these were investors who were hoping that it would turn a profit. They realized, you know, we can't keep this up. No, no one is going to want to come to such a place. So one of their innovations was to allow uh, settlers who were already there uh, to have uh, certain tracts of land that they owned and you could get more if you brought other settlers over with you. So that was an incentive to, to bring more people. Uh, the, big, the even bigger change that they made was a decision about how the uh, colony should be ruled on the ground. And uh, this happened in 1618. A new governor, Governor Yardley, was sent over. He had a commission to call what became known as a general assembly. So that was – that consisted of him. It consisted of his governor's council which had been picked by the company that was sponsoring the whole colony. And it also consisted of elected uh, representatives from the different settlements that compose Jamestown. Now, what's influencing them in all this? I mean, as you said, common law. These are all Englishmen. This is the system they have grown up with. Uh, property, their notions of property had been shaped and defined by the common law they had lived under back in the home country. Uh, also, they're looking at parliament. Um, some of the rules that they adopted for just the procedures of the uh, Jamestown General Assembly were taken from parliamentary procedure. Uh, one was that a proposed um, bill would have to be read three times before it was voted on. This is a custom in parliament today. You know, it's obvious why they do this. It, it means um, you know, you, you're not going to slip something in quickly. Everybody knows what's going on. Uh, but but that's the that's the source of it in Jamestown. So they were uh, they were very definitely 
transporting and transplanting elements of their English experience here, even as they themselves were transplanted here. You know, it's going to be a while before the majority of the people in Jamestown will be born there. You know, at this period, we're still talking about immigrants and settlers. Right. And the move to have a representative assembly strikes us in retrospect as a really profound moment because it integrates questions of representation into life in British North America out of the gate. Or at this point, I guess it's English North America. But um, it seems, you know, that they almost sort of walked into doing it. Um, they created this mixed government of centralized authority through the governor and his council and uh, a distributed uh, representative body. Um, they do it territorially. Different plantations and lots of land get represented. Um, two for each. Two for each, right. And and you list the, the different people and it's, it's, it's of course, uh, you know, fascinating to think about how that uh, electioneering goes when uh, the fellow elected, um, you know, has the name of uh, of the the uh, what have you the plantation that he's representing, right? So, oh, right. It's like Martin's yeah. hundred is represented by by Martin, right? Yeah. Unsurprisingly, yeah, by uh, Mr. Martin. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. People will be shocked to know that Captain Ward's plantation elects Captain John Ward. Um, likewise, Captain uh, Lawn's plantation adapt uh, elects Captain Christopher Lawn. But um, but let's note that they were chosen by the majority of the suffrage of the freemen who lived in those places. So obviously they have an advantage because it's their plantation, but they did have to have a number of people vote for them. So that's what I wanted to ask you about is how broad was the suffrage and what did they think they were representing? Well, the suffrage uh, was limited to freemen. So people who were there under indentures, under indentured labor contracts are not voting. Uh, and this this is a lot of people. This is this is one way in which Jamestown populated itself. And a, a typical indenture would run for seven years. You know, you would be someone in England, probably not in such good shape yourself, thinking maybe this will be better across the ocean. All right, I'll I'll sign this deal. You know, I'll take the risk. And uh, and you were uh, owned for the duration of your contract. I mean, it resembled slavery in that you know you were the um, you you were owned by the person who had the contract, who could also pass it on to somebody else. It's very different from slavery because at the end of your your time, the, then you're free, you're off on your own. So those people are not are are out of it. Um, and and when, about about how many um, indentured or what share of the colony is indentured? I don't have the figure, but it's certainly the majority. Okay. Uh, but – and then you also – also uh, the women are not uh, voting in this setup. So it, it is a limited franchise. Uh, so it was in England for parliament, um, even, even more limited in many cases. Uh, uh, the rotten borough was, was not a myth. It, it was a reality. So uh, – but there was a franchise and what's striking about it is – it operates on two levels. It operates on the level of how the representatives or burgesses are picked and then it operates again in the assembly once they are picked. When they have to vote on something, they all have one vote. The governor has one vote. All the members of his council have one vote and all these burgesses, each of them has one vote. Mm -hmm. Now, the governor has a veto. OK, so he's got superpowers but 
in the original vote, everybody has won. So, and so this principle of, you know, we take a vote and whoever wins, wins, is established at, at two levels of governance as early as 1619. I mean, it seems, knowing something about early 17th century England, that in fact, this is a almost radically much more democratic society than what people would have been encountering. Where does, where does rank and heredity fit into life in Jamestown? Well, uh, as, as you can see when you look at the list of original uh, Burgesses, they are given different ranks. There is captain so-and-so. There is ensign so-and-so. I mean many of these ranks are military but they still they, – they, they carry a lot of clout. Uh, all the Burgesses had to swear an oath of loyalty to the king before the general assembly began its first session. That, that was the first order of business. Uh, it was held in Jamestown's church. Uh, the, the Burgesses were sitting in the choir. The other more prominent people were on the chancel but the Burgesses all had to march out into the body of the church and each of them had to swear loyalty to James I and then business could be conducted. So that's a – you know, right out of the gate, that is a telling statement of what the ranks are in, in old Virginia. But they don't go about assigning people royal titles of nobility, things like you know there aren't there aren't baronets or anything like that wandering around. Well, right, because what baronet is going to come here? <laughs> you know the bar the barons aren't stupid. They're back in England. They're investing in the yeah. company. You know right. they're the ones in London uh, who who have got this whole thing going and are hoping to make the profits from it. Uh, they are most unlikely to take ship and come over here themselves. Um, tell me a bit about the kind of uh, – some of the outstanding individuals beyond John Smith who you know, people have seen the movies and, and heard the romantic stories about him. But what sort of a man was Yardley? What sort of men ran Jamestown? Well, Yardley there's, – there's a question about Yardley. Did, was he interested in this reform over which he presided for the sake of reform or was it simply a – pragmatic decision that the company of investors that picked him used to try and attract more people, uh, uh, make their investment more attractive. And the historians I've read don't have a conclusion on that. Uh, Yardley was a, a veteran of uh, fighting in the Netherlands. This had been a great Catholic Protestant struggle. Uh, Spain uh, still owned the Netherlands which had, had – a mostly Protestant population and, and England uh, was helping its fellow Protestants out there. So that was a kind of military credential that a lot of military men in England at the time had. Uh, he had it. Uh, he was, um, he was uh, promoted to nobility before he was sent over by, by King James uh, in order that it would grace him the more. So they wanted to like stick a gold star on his head before they – before they send him across the Atlantic. Uh, the man who was uh, helping him out during this original session was a man named John Pory. Uh, he was the speaker of the assembly. Uh, we shouldn't take that too grandly. He was basically the clerk but he, he kept things moving. Uh, he, he controlled sort of the flow of the discussion and he wrote up the results. Uh, so he, he is the, the lens through which 
we have uh, learned about these deliberations. And obviously these deliberations feature prominently in terms of the interactions with uh, the with the Indians who live in coastal Virginia at this time. Um, are, are the sort of leaders of, of the Indian tribes that they interact with both for purposes of trade and purposes of war fundamentally different in temperament and outlook? Are they, you know, generally sons of chieftains or are they also like these people sort of fairly uh, hard-headed and pragmatic? Well, there, there are two leaders that Jamestown deals with in its early history. The first one is Wahun Sunakak and uh, he is an empire builder. He has brought a number of tribes under his control and his attitude towards the, the Englishmen who show up on his doorstep for the most part is, well, this is interesting. Maybe I can get something from these people. They have copper. That's new. That's useful. Maybe we can trade for that. Uh, he's keeping a careful eye on them, but, but he sees them as possibly useful neighbors, maybe even potential allies. Now, at the same time, the English are you know, hoping to get him to swear allegiance to King James, which is probably a concept he couldn't even understand. I mean, who is that? What's this all about? What do they mean? And by the way, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. Right. Now, when he dies, he is replaced by a, a, a relative. It's not clear the relation, but his name was Opakankanao, and he may have lived among Spaniards early in his life. So he uh, may have had previous contact with Europeans, and he um, decides early in the 1620s that this neighborly relation is is not working out. Uh, th this colony seems to be growing and growing, and he launches a an attack on it uh, in order to destroy it, to break its will. Uh, lots of casualties, and then this uh, ignites a period of internecine warfare in which the English prevail, not because of numbers, but because they have firearms. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, very crude by even by standards of of the Revolutionary War, but very destructive if fired in volleys, and and this allows them to prevail in that uh, orgy of bloodshed that ensues. Yeah, Open Kankanao reminded me a bit of King Philip of the Wampanoag, who you know up in in Massachusetts takes over from his father when his father dies and and winds up launching King Philip's War in 1676. And what's notable about him is that he's much more assimilated with the English. He raises hogs, which of course is a very contested thing in, in that time uh, with his own people than any of the other Wampanoags. And it's, it's part of what I think leads to the violence there is precisely his familiarity with the Massachusetts Bay settlers. And, um, right. Or maybe, maybe it's, it's true of both of them that they, they understood the potential threat or the gravity of the potential threat. Right. Whereas their fathers had had this time of, of living before the English had arrived and so saw them as coming and going. The mm -hmm. Dutch had come and gone. The mm -hmm. Spanish were around. Um, is there a world where in – I guess to put it this way, in Jamestown, do we already have a kind of manifest destiny? I, I bring this up as an extension of the, of the ultimately um, you know, difficult and conflict-ridden relationship that they have uh, with the natives. Is it the case that Jamestown will always blossom out from where it is into the hinterlands of Virginia and up through the Appalachians and beyond or is it 
is there an alternative history where even with the advent of tobacco and the booming of commerce, it remains a, not unlike New Amsterdam, wealthy but not, or say Quebec City uh, further north, a wealthy but not thoroughly populated and booming um, economic outpost of the English Empire? Well, these are policy decisions that were taken and as long as the uh, English and the colony maintain the policy of, of giving people extra land if you could bring extra people over. I mean that is just the incentive to keep having more and more Englishmen and over time women coming over here. So you know, as, uh, as long as you keep doing that, you're going you're gonna to keep them growing unless you can beat them, unless you can destroy like them. Right. The, uh, the, only, the only alternative to that is containment mm -hmm. or, or destruction. And, and do you think that was an intentional policy choice or was it a kind of quotidian outcome? Um, was it just driven by necessity and uh, given the harshness of the early years? Well, it was probably driven by economics, the company wanting to make a return and figuring you know, more people will lead to a greater return. Uh, when they discover tobacco, their great bonanza of a cash crop, and this is because they get seeds of, of South American tobacco uh, John Rolfe, who ends up marrying Pocahontas, is the man who does this. And this is a vast improvement on what the local Indians were smoking. Mm. There was a tobacco-related plant they were smoking. But the South American stuff was the good stuff. And once Jamestown started growing that, it was smoking was already a fashion in England. But now uh, Englishmen could buy their tobacco from an English colony. They didn't have to smuggle it out of, uh, out of the Spanish empire. So economically, Jamestown and the whole Chesapeake Bay was, was, was off to the races. Now, I know there's a, a letter from James I condemning smoking as a disgusting and filthy habit from right around this time. Um, they didn't read it. <laughs> they did, yeah, no. Well, and we still don't. Um, the, the presence of tobacco, the presence of small landholding, the movement of people from England to to Virginia and the proliferation of its population, even in the wake of, of this extremely violent war, is, is their liberty a byproduct of – I mean obviously it will be a byproduct of multiple things. But is the emerging l sort of daily liberty of the, the Virginians a byproduct of ideology or a byproduct of circumstance? Are they, are they rationalizing backwards to explain where they are? Are they creating institutions to hold together a – potentially politically unmanageable circumstance? What, what drives liberty? I think the drive for self-rule once it starts in 1619 with this first – it's only a few days meeting of the General Assembly. Once that starts, they like it and they want to keep it and they do even it's like, though – It's like smoking. They get a taste for it. It's addictive. Well, yeah, <laughs> uh, only it's better. Uh, they, they keep it up even though – uh, the company back in England is not particularly encouraging. I mean they're still running the place. Uh, the king only uh, recognizes these uh, annual assemblies formally in 1639 as late as that. They profit from inattention in England because when the English Civil War is happening, they're not paying – they're paying less attention to what's going on in Virginia. So once they start doing it, they want to keep doing it. They want – self-rule. Uh, they, they grow accustomed to it. They like it. This is part of their life and the Virginia assembly is still 
meeting today. Yeah, the General Assembly is up for election in a couple of weeks, actually. The entire uh, Senate and House of uh, delegates now, not Burgesses, but delegates. Um, the young institutions often fail. Um, they often struggle to deliver for the people that they're trying to represent and, and these were explicit representations although as we talked about earlier, sometimes it was the person who owned the plantation who was serving as the representation of his own interests. Why was the assembly successful? Um, was it responsible? Did it become venal or corrupt? Did it go oh, back of course and forth? It, you know, of course it did. That, that's um, something that often happens in politics. I mean I'm not not to say that they were always like that but you know it always it often entered in but uh the self rule it was both attractive it was also what was the alternative I mean here they were a whole ocean away from all the other uh, uh institutions and ruling structures that existed in England and you know you got to run your life somehow you know there have to be rules Somebody's got to pick them. Somebody's got to write them. Let's us do it. And that's that's I think the great the great gift of Jamestown to the whole American experience. Give Me Liberty is brought to you by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. America faces a crisis. Too many Americans don't know why they should love their own country. Ashbrook's mission is to change that. Since President Reagan inaugurated the Ashbrook Center in 1983, its mission has been to strengthen constitutional self-government, educating students, teachers, and citizens in America's history and founding principles. Ashbrook just released an essential resource for rediscovering the principles and history of our country called the American Idea. The volume presents the American story through a few key primary documents and invites the reader into a rich conversation across time about the central idea that defines America. The American Idea is available as a free digital download and for purchase. Visit ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today. That's ashbrook.org slash American Idea to get your copy today.